Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, friends. Welcome back. If you're returning and if you're a new friend, I'm so glad to have you here. Very excited for this episode. This is the bonus episode that is going on to the main feed due to all the people sending me Red Bulls. Thank you so much for all the support. I appreciate it. The next goal on Buy Me a Red Bull will be for a pair of studio headphones. I'd really love to get some more equipment and that would be a pricier thing. So that will be the next goal. The best thing that you can do really is just share this podcast with a friend that loves true crime. I'm really here more for people to enjoy this. So if you are enjoying it and you want to send some appreciation, that is awesome. And I love that. Thank you so much. But if you're just enjoying the podcast, I would love for you just to like give us a shout on social media or tell some friends, share it around. This week, I'm very excited to have a great friend of mine on as a guest, Meredith. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, everybody. Hey, Mary. I'm super pumped for this. So Meredith and I have known each other for a good long time. I want to say maybe like 12 or 13 years, I think, at this point. We met in college when we were RAs on different staffs. So at the same time, but we didn't work directly together. I want to say you were a year ahead of me too, but yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. The source I use for this week's case is Wikipedia, and the content warnings are bombings, murders, and attempted suicide. Today, we are talking about the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Oh, shit. <laughs> One of the podcasts I listen to, and that's why we drink it, they recently, Christine recently did an episode about the Unabomber. I wonder if there'll be anything in here that's new. Ted Kaczynski was born in Chicago on May 22nd, 1942. His parents, Wanda and Theodore, were Polish Americans, and his dad was actually a sausage maker. Both his parents were raised Catholics, but later became atheists. And they were married just three years before Ted was born. David, Ted's younger brother, was born in 1949. David recalls Wanda telling him that Ted had generally been a really happy baby until he came down with a severe case of hives. So he had to go into the hospital for quite a while. He was in isolation there. And he had very limited interactions in the time that he was recovering. His temperament changed significantly after this isolation. Early childhood development, I think being alone at this time is psychologically very, very impactful. Yeah, like I can imagine that being scary for any little kid. I am an EMT. I'm a first responder. So I go to hospitals all the time. And like just all those like wires, machines hooked up to you, all the noises, you hear everything out in the hall, if you got an IV, and you don't see that many people, especially a baby. Like, they need that face-to-face contact and that interaction. Ted's mom, Wanda, actually said that he showed very little emotion in the following months after he got out of the hospital. Yeah, shit, that's not good. She also said that once they had shown Ted baby pictures of himself in the hospital, in one picture he was being held down and being examined by a bunch of the doctors. Oh, Jesus. And Ted physically recoiled seeing this picture. Ted also was very sympathetic and caring, especially about animals being trapped in cages or struggling. Yeah. And his mom thought this was because of this experience that he'd gone through. Yeah, I can see that. Ted does pretty well in elementary school. And a few years after David is born, they move to Evergreen Park, Illinois. Ted is IQ tested and scores 167. So he skips the sixth grade. Yeah, I was just going to say like that's 
always controversial when a kid skips the grade because like he could be smart academically but like is he emotionally socially ready because like he's gonna be with bigger older kids too right i did a bunch of this advanced testing when i was a kid there was a lot of weekends i would go to like some high school or wherever and take these standardized tests because i read really fast and i type and i write really fast but i am fucking dog shit at math like so bad i stopped paying attention to math in fourth grade literally have a fourth or fifth grade understanding of math I can't do long division that's what we're talking about like even though I was testing in the top percentiles for all these the language arts and English or whatever else there's no way that I was skipping because of how far behind I was in math well it doesn't matter anyway anymore that you don't know long division they don't teach the kids that Correct. And I have a fucking calculator walking around in my pocket. So exactly. Right. <laughs> Standardized tests are just trash. Just 100% Standardized trash. testing is extremely, extremely racist. The implicit bias in the creation of the tests and the administration and everything. Yeah, I could get on that soapbox for hours. Yeah. <laughs> Being told that you are smart and gifted like that when you're little really does a number on you too. I know I'm not alone in this mm-hmm. and you'd think it would be wonderful. But by the time I got to high school, I was undiagnosed bipolar. I'm depressed. I'm having a lot of issues in my life. Mm-hmm. The worth based on academic achievement, I didn't really get over that. Like that was still there when I went to college and grad school. Yeah. Ted said later in life that skipping sixth grade was a huge moment for him. He was socializing with the other kids naturally, and he was even kind of a leader amongst his peers. But once he transfers, he starts getting bullied by the older kids for not fitting in. 100% called it. As we know, kids are fucking vicious. Yeah. Like, I was fully suicidal in elementary school because I got bullied so bad. And it only got better towards, like, the end of my time in middle school when the school was was like too big for all the same elementary school people to be around yeah so i bet that that was fucking terrible yeah and that definitely was clearly as we get further into ted's story from what i remember that's definitely gonna change a lot of fucking things for him Yes, it is going to impact your development. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. The studies that say that your brain's not fully formed to 25, that's agreed. <laughs> yeah, that is known. <laughs> yes. That's what's known from science. Yes, because we are both here for pro-science. Yeah. Empirical data and knowledge is the T. Yes. Just like generally in life, let's yes. go with what the experts say, not what your YouTube video said. <laughs> The Kaczynskis are a pretty typical middle-class family. The neighbors say they're very civic-minded, and both parents sacrifice a lot for their children to be happy. David is also really smart, but not as much as Ted, and everyone kind of knows it. Yeah. Which must have been an interesting family dynamic as well. Yeah, I bet, like, the dinner tables were very interesting about, like, everything great about Ted. Ted is so smart. Ted skipped. And it'd be like, oh, hi, David. Do you want to pass the mashed potatoes? Like, shit like that, maybe. Ted is also very lonely and shy. So if he gets pressured into social situations, he will completely shut down and become completely unresponsive. Wanda had actually met with Bruno Bettelheim, who was an early writer and researcher of autism. Oh. He had been running a study for autistic children, and Wanda was considering entering Ted into the study. She decided not to because they met, and she felt like Bruno had zero bedside manner. Mm. Really cold, very harsh, and just not somebody she wanted to trust 
her kid with. I also totally get that. I have definitely met some doctors who are really great with bedside manner, really great with patients. And then I have met people that I was like, Jesus Christ, like, how did you get your MD, man? Like, you can't be a smidge compassionate, just a smidge. Some people are just not meant to interact with other people, period. Like, you just should be in a cave alone. Yep. I got a couple coworkers like that too. <laughs> and periodically, I am one of those people. Don't perceive me. <laughs> I just will hide here. Thank you. You're also like, you give the truth, you give the tea, but it's not, if you're like a little harsh about it, it's not undeserved. Like, yes. if, someone, if someone gives it to you, you give it right back. You don't give it I'm going to meet you with the same energy. Yes. 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 I have really been kind of hoping for some riffraff to pop off. Not that I'm directly involved in, but just something around me that I can insert myself into the situation and get loud. (laughs) That's the dream right now. I would love for that to happen. (laughs) Not something where like I am getting yelled at or whatever, but somebody else is undeservedly and I can jump in. Yes. Ted in high school is still doing pretty well academically. He is in the marching band and he plays the trombone. Okay. He's actually in quite a few clubs. The mathematics club, band, biology, coin club, and the German club. The coin club. I assume coin collecting. Yeah, I just, yeah, I don't know. I never heard of former classmates described Ted as being stereotyped pretty quickly as just a walking brain. Mm. He never really had much of a personality beyond that than anybody was able to pick up on. That's like really sad. Yeah. (sighs) Ted becomes more withdrawn and more focused on math. So what I did with books and reading, Ted did with math. Just for hours, he's going down the rabbit hole. He's solving equations. He's doing these advanced problems that are well beyond what most people his age are able to do. And he bands together with some other nerds who love math and science. And they all like to carry briefcases. <laughs> Sorry, I just had this image of like high schoolers like with briefcases and like wearing suits and ties. So <laughs> they are known at school as the briefcase boys. Ooh, I like that name. You know, straightforward. Yeah, it's very clear, very concise. You know exactly what that message is. Says what it does on the tin. You know who they are before you see them. Ted is leveling up with math, and eventually he has actually mastered everything the school could possibly teach him. He skips 11th grade. Oh, shit. So he was like sophomore. Okay. So he skips 11th grade and goes to summer school, meaning that he is able to graduate high school at 15. Oh, okay. Never mind. Even younger. Damn. Yeah, he gets a scholarship to Harvard, and at 16 years old in 1958, he starts college. Mm. This is so freaking young to go away to school. That Yeah, that's like incredibly too young. Like, could you imagine if like when we go to Curry and we're freshmen and there's like, oh, yeah, here's this 15, 16 year old. Like being the RA for a quote unquote gifted student who's coming in that young has to be a nightmare. Oh, God, a hundred freaking percent. And like the fact that he wasn't even from Massachusetts, like come flying out here, like no family. As an RA, it'd be like, I don't want to be in charge of a minor. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. Ted actually moves into a small student housing building that all of the young incoming students live in. So at least they have a cohort of younger students going. Okay. After his first year there, he moves into Elliott House, which is one of the 12 regular dorm buildings. And he lives there for the rest of his time at Harvard. Okay. He's still very quiet and smart, not much of a social life. 
And in his sophomore year, he participates in a study led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. This study was described by Alston Chase, an author, as a purposely brutalizing psychological experiment. Yep, I was waiting for that. Just great. Maybe because it was like, you know, the 50s and and 60s, but I just don't even understand the point of these like studies of like, yeah, I'm just going to be a total asshole to you and fuck you up mentally. (laughs) Well, the point is, Meredith, that it was old white men in charge. (laughs) You're right. You're right. And so (laughs) they said, what do we want to do? Let's be fucking terrible. Yeah. And let's let's make it science, too. You're right. Thank you, old white men, for involving science and just making terrible. Thank you so much. That's what happened. There wasn't one single ethical person that was like, don't you think there's an issue here? Oh, my God. Fucking white men. Well, old white men. (laughs) In this lovely study, the subjects are told they're going to be debating personal philosophy with a fellow student. My worst fucking nightmare. I do not want to debate my personal philosophy with you, Braj. Just keep it moving. (laughs) To prepare, they have to write an essay detailing their personal beliefs and their deepest dreams. Is it bad that like just when it would get to the point of like, you need to write an essay about this and be like, nah, I don't want to write an essay. Do you know how many freaking papers I have to write? I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just like, nah, peace out. If I have to write more than a paragraph, I'm done. (laughs) In what is my biggest trigger and most horrible nightmare, Mm -hmm. the essays are given to an anonymous person who will then confront the writer. They begin attacking the writer verbally, belittling them, hitting way below the belt, very acidic verbal abuse, using all of the information from these essays. And if I remember correct, it's like the person who sends the letter, they think it is going to a student, but it's in reality not going to a student. It's going to somebody pretending to be a student, but the person writing the letter doesn't know that. So they just think it's another peer just like, you know, ripping their personal philosophy to shreds, correct? And someone else who's going to be doing this too, writing their own letter. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, correct. During this abusive interaction, electrodes would be attached to the letter author monitoring their physical reactions. And these sessions were filmed. Oh, Jesus. This experiment continues for three fucking years. No. And for the following three years, the video of the subjects reacting in anger and rage is played for them repeatedly. All right, yeah, that's new. I didn't know that. Did anybody just be like, you know what? I'm dropping the fuck out. Screw this. I'm at Harvard. I'm literally at Harvard. I have other things to do than just read a letter from someone I don't know just saying awful shit to me. There must have been (laughs) because the other component of this ongoing study besides rewatching the videos and revisiting the abuse. Yeah. They are are going to also have refresher sessions every week just to keep that verbal abuse nice and fresh and really just make sure that we're getting that message in and just conditioning the brain that you are a gigantic piece of shit. Once again, thank you old white men for this awful Sunday that you've created and you just added the raw and disgusting cherry on top. Thank you. Yep. Thank you so much old white men. By the time Ted finished this study, he had completed 200 hours of being... Verbally abused at the worst levels. Oh my god. And he was like 16, 17, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, just. He was probably 18 by the end of the study. Oh god. Later, a lot of people connect this study to his crimes, including his lawyer. Yeah. 
That would make sense. One popular theory is that Henry Murray, the guy leading the study, was working with the CIA, and this experiment was tied to Project MK Ultra. Wow, that's that's a name drop right there. For anyone not in the know, MK Ultra is real. This is not a conspiracy theory, even though it was sold as that for many, many years. It has been confirmed. There is public documentation available that you can look at. MKUltra was the codename for the CIA's investigations into the possibility of mind control. Many of the experiments done on humans in this program were illegal. Some examples using LSD in interrogations to force confessions, brainwashing, and psychological torture. Yay! Sarcastically. <laughs> if you have ever read the book or seen the movie Firestarter, yes, based on the Stephen King novel, that government facility and development of giving that little girl telekinesis, that is inspired by MK Ultra. Jesus. Yeah. I also want to say the the book and movie Manchurian Candidate. Oh, I don't think I've seen that one. It's uh it's definitely really interesting. It's I can't remember if they use specifically LSD and basically the whole point is to brainwash somebody to be the perfect assassin to the point that they don't know they're assassin and you say a trigger word, trigger phase. A sleeper. Yes. A winter soldier, Bucky Barnes <laughs> yeah. situation. Yeah. From Wikipedia, the project was organized through the Office of Scientific Intelligence of the CIA and coordinated with the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories. There were other drug Related experiments given code names like Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke. Oh, I never heard of that one, but I've heard of Bluebird. The operation was officially sanctioned in 1953, reduced in scope in 1964, and further curtailed in 1967. However, it was not officially halted until 1973. Uh... And it may never have been officially halted. Officially? <laughs> officially what? That shit could be going on today. No, it you're probably right. is. You're, you're right, and that is like 100% terrifying, because it's very well known and documented that they have done some like really scary shit and yeah i would not be surprised that if it's if there's something still ongoing yeah oh absolutely so mk ultra engaged in a lot of illegal activities including the use of u.s and canadian citizens as unwitting test subjects oh that's really creepy they're experimenting on people who have no idea they're being experimented upon once again thank you u.s government let's not give people drugs against their will like it's not <laughs> funny when it's a pop brownie and they don't know and it's not funny when it's lsd and you're trying to brainwash them. i was gonna say it's not funny when you do know that you're taking something and you're like oh shit this is not what i wanted i did not want this scary sensation where it feels like your couch is eating me <laughs> Right. <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. Awful, just awful. MK Ultra used many different methods to manipulate subjects' mental states and the way their brains functioned, such as covert administration of high doses of psychoactive drugs, including LSD, as well as other chemicals, electroshocks, oh hypnosis, God. sensory deprivation, isolation, verbal and sexual abuse, and other forms of torture. Super extremely random theory, but 
do you think maybe that's why we had so many freaking serial killers in like the damn 70s? Because all these people that were unknowing (laughs) were being tortured because everything you just said can like seriously fuck you up. (laughs) So I have a limited understanding of LSD. Like, did you put it in the water? How are you doing this mass scale testing? I mean, you're you're correct. In my brain, it's like they're running up to someone with a syringe, but I know that's not how acid works like at all. I don't get it. Yeah, I just, I do have a feeling like, I don't know, in my head, it just, I imagine it's like little tiny powder and you put it in a drink and it dissolves. God. That's my imagining. It could be 100% wrong. I would be happy if it's wrong. <laughs> the scope of MK Ultra was really broad. So there were activities being carried out allegedly as research <clears throat> at more than 80 institutions, including colleges, universities, hospitals, prisons, and pharmaceutical companies. No, why why did you have to also bring the hospitals and prisons in there? Oh, that's all bad. That's all kinds of bad. <laughs> The CIA operated using front organizations, so sometimes the top officials at these places didn't even know that the CIA was involved. That is, once again, I know I've repeated it, that is scary. That's just yep. scary. Project MK Ultra was first brought to public attention in 1975 by the Church Committee of the United States Congress and Gerald Ford's United States President Commission on CIA Activities within the United States, commonly known as the Rockefeller Commission. Oh, okay. Investigative efforts were hampered by the CIA director, Richard Helms, because he had ordered that all MK Ultra files be destroyed in 1973. Well, he's the CIA director, and once again, he is an old white man, and why are you annoying him about his business? Shut up, <laughs> Betty. The men are working. You don't need to know about the extra line item in the budget for this $500,000 of LSD. Shut up. Go make a pot of coffee. <laughs> He's just trying to do what's best for the country, and you being a nosy little bitch, Betty's not fucking helping. Jesus. Uh, Both of the investigations, the Rockefeller Commission and the Church Committee investigation, they had to rely on sworn testimony of participants and a very small number of documents that had survived the order to destroy everything. Can we just thank the person that did, like, not destroy those files? Like, let's thank that person because that person right there is an unsung hero. Like, they must have been terrified trying to get those papers out of the CIA. You're trying to whistleblow on people who rape and torture and drug people and cover shit up for a living. Yeah, or just like the fact that they are so highly skilled that they could probably kill you that it looks like an overdose or a a natural death. Absolutely. Or just make you completely disappear. Yep. Terrifying. In 1977, a Freedom of Information Act request uncovered a cache of 20,000 documents related to Project MKUltra. Wow. This led to Senate hearings later that year. (laughs) Some surviving information regarding MKUltra was declassified in July 2001. Up until then, it had just been a conspiracy theory akin to Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster. This was up there with things that people would say, the United States government would never, ever, ever have any operation happening on American soil without American knowledge. They would never do anything negative to the citizens. (laughs) Yeah, just peachy keen. No problems. So this really, you know, blew that up. In December 2018, declassified documents were found, including a letter to an unidentified doctor discussing work done on six dogs who were made to run, turn, and stop via remote control and brain implants. Oh, no. Oh. What the fuck is wrong with y'all? I don't... 
That is just like... Were you going to try to make robot humans eventually? Like, where were you going with that? It's like literally that line out of Jurassic Park of they were talking about how they created and cloned the dinosaurs. It's like your scientists, while they were doing this, they didn't stop to think should they they didn't stop to look in that fucking beautiful dog's face and say i'm so sorry that i'm such a trash human being piece of fucking waste i know how do you live with yourself i don't know and the worst part is most animals that are treated in labs and stuff are usually beagles because beagles are so nice and sweet oh i didn't know that that's awful i know and i got my own beagle well that's why i do my best now to do all cruelty free free promotion to the app cruelty critter it literally you just download it scan stuff and i'll tell you if it's cruelty free or not i love that ted graduates harvard with a 3.12 gpa oh damn okay In 1962, he enrolls at the University of Michigan and gets his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics. He wasn't interested in Michigan at first. He really wanted to go to University of California, Berkeley or University of Chicago, but neither school offered him financial aid or a teaching job to support himself through school. Okay. Michigan gave him a teaching job and $2,300 annually. Oh, shit. Today's money, this is around 20000 bucks a year. That's nice. That's still nice. It's not great, but... You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's better than the other options he was offered. So out of the three options, the best one. Yes. Yeah, it's better than the options of just go to school and take on debt. Yes. <laughs> At Michigan... Ted develops a reputation as a very focused but unusual person. He specializes in complex analysis of geometric function theory. My favorite party topic. (laughs) I was about to ask, what is that? (laughs) I think it's safe to say that any conversation with Ted about math would be so far beyond my comprehension that he'd have better luck talking to my dog, Susie. I was like literally thinking like maybe him and Bill Gates would have like that intellectual conversation where like they could both understand it. But yes, a majority of society would be like, what? (laughs) One of his colleagues said it's not enough to just say Ted was smart. In his time at Michigan, he took 18 courses, getting 12 A's, 5 B's, and 1 F. Okay. Just for the record, if you're out there studying academically, B's and C's get degrees. Don't forget it. That is 100% true. We definitely say this like all the time when we go see doctors that somebody who graduated medical school, all the doctors, some doctors got A's and some graduated with a bunch of C's. So, Yep. In 2006, Ted is interviewed and says his five years in Michigan were among the most miserable years of his entire life. He also said he thought Michigan was way too easy with their grading and his high grades are all proof of this. I mean, I don't know michigan so i guess i'll go with ted's word on that i understand being really hard on yourself because i had the same kind of imposter syndrome about my grades in grad school even though i'm getting straight a's i'm like oh but it's so easy and then i had this one class where it was just like i want to say like nine women maybe in the class and they curved the grades And that hadn't happened for me in a long time and I wasn't used to it. We were getting all of our papers back and everyone is bitching about how bad they did and how like the curve is ruined and blah, 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 blah. And the curve is ruined because I flipped over my paper to reveal a 97. (laughs) And I was like, fuck, I guess I am smart and doing better than I thought that I was. Ted, I get this part where you're like, yeah, but if I could pass, like, what the fuck? It's not that exclusive or it's not that good. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. This moment made my jaw drop 
And I tried to do as deep a dive as I could on all of these sources because what I'm about to say is the definition of a record scratching moment. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. In 1966, Ted began having intense sexual fantasies about being female. What? And I just want to unpack that for a minute. Okay. I am not trans, I am not non-binary, but my understanding is that if you are experiencing gender dysphoria, or if you are in a place where your gender identity is something that is unclear or you're not sure about, it's my understanding that that is not a sexual or erotic situation. So I'm a little confused just this sentence alone, having intense sexual fantasies about being female, I don't know that that means that Ted was trans or non-binary. Yeah. Nobody knows that but Ted, like not our place to define that. Yeah. But I am a little confused by that context that it was intensely sexual in nature. Yeah. Ted was just so socially isolated for so much of his life that maybe he just, that underdevelopment like just confused everything in his head for him that it was just a lot of confusing emotions. Who knows? The other piece, to be very fair, this is 1966. This is not a time where people can come out as trans or non-binary comfortably and safely in society. So we will never know what impact, if any, that this had. 100%. These fantasies did go on for quite a few months. And he scheduled a meeting with a psychiatrist. When the appointment comes, he becomes overwhelmed in the waiting room. He just has a complete meltdown. And he lies to the psychiatrist and says he's there because he's depressed about the possibility that he could be drafted into the Vietnam War. Mm, He does not say the real reason that he scheduled the appointment because he had wanted to discuss gender reassignment surgery. (sighs) Wow. Something to take into because, yeah, you're saying that was the 60s at that point. The other thing that I think is important to mention is that Ted making this appointment to discuss gender reassignment surgery also doesn't necessarily mean that he was trans or non-binary and just decided not to go through with it. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, if you want to discuss gender reassignment surgery, there's a reason for that. Whether or not that is related to your gender identity, something is going on there that you're recognizing you want some help to process through. So leaving the appointment with this psychiatrist, Ted becomes enraged. He starts thinking about killing the psychiatrist as well as a bunch of other people he hated. Okay, that took a turn. (laughs) Quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do, and I felt humiliated and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then, there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. Okay. <laughs> Just another piece that I want to unpack. Yeah. I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had also led me to do. That very much does not read to me as a gender identity struggle. No. So there was something else there in my humble opinion. I may be wrong. I cannot speak for somebody who is trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming. I just can't speak from that place. But it gives me some pause the way that he's describing it himself. Yeah, no, there's like something definitely 100% going on. And as you already said, I am cisgender. That is not my place to say what he was feeling, but I agree with your point. There's more. There is something deeper psychologically at play. Yeah. In 1967, Ted's dissertation, Boundary Functions, 
won the Sumner B. Myers Prize for Michigan's Best Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. Okay. Ted's doctoral advisor says it was the best he'd ever directed. Maxwell Reed, a member of the dissertation committee, said, I would guess that maybe 10 or 12 men in the country could understand or appreciate it. Oh, shit. So, yeah, that's... So, your Bill Gates comment, dead on. Yeah, I was gonna say, yep, yep. Ted has reached a whole new level with that paper. Yes. Later in 1967, now 25-year-old Ted becomes acting assistant professor at UC Berkeley teaching math, and the following year he becomes a full assistant professor. This is a really great step towards becoming tenured. Yes. But his students do not like him. Because once again, he's so super smart academically, but... No social skills. Yeah, the social skills is very lacking. Ted doesn't answer any questions from his students, period. (laughs) Oh no. None. He lectures directly from the textbook, just reading from the textbook. Oh, God. And he's very clearly uncomfortable in front of the class. Ted suddenly and unexpectedly resigns on June 30th, 1969. Okay. Later, it's discovered that Ted's subfield of math ceased to exist after the 60s since most of its conjectures had been proven. So if Ted had continued in math, he would have to find a new area of math to study. Oh, shit. That's like a real fucking blow right there. Oh, doesn't matter anymore. Yes, correct. (laughs) Ted moves back in with his parents for a couple years, and in 1971, he moves to a remote cabin he built outside Lincoln, Montana. He wants to live a simple, off-the-grid life. Very little money, very little things, no electricity, no running water, and doing odd jobs, trying to make ends meet, and getting some cash from his parents. And once again, if that's something you want to do and you're not hurting yourself or other people, good on you, because that's what some people want to do. Some people just want to, like, literally go out live in the woods and not deal with technology that is not me but i totally get that some people want to do that right ted wants to become completely self-sufficient and separate from his parents financially okay he buys an old bicycle to get around and starts volunteering at the library this isn't necessarily strange for the lincoln area yeah it's montana it's very woodsy wilderness not yep. a lot of stuff going on so yeah in 1990 a census taker visited ted's cabin it had a bed two chairs some storage trunks a gas stove and a lot of books okay starting in 1975 ted sets up booby traps all around his cabin uh, we have now taken another dark turn <laughs> He also starts doing some light arson, just for fun. (laughs) Just just a smidge of arson on the side, everybody. (laughs) Part-time arson. Part-time. A per diem arson. Yes. (laughs) He also starts getting into sociology and political philosophy, specifically someone named Jacques Ellul. From Wikipedia, the dominant theme of Alul's work proved to be the threat to human freedom and religion created by modern technology. Ooh, okay. He did not seek to eliminate modern technology or technique, but sought to change our perception of modern technology and technique to that of a tool rather than the regulator of the status quo. Okay. I mean, I get that. Alul's most influential book, The Technological Society, quickly becomes Ted's Bible. Oh, God. Okay. In 1998, Ted said, quote, When I read the book for the first time, I was delighted because I thought, 
here is someone who's saying what I've already been thinking. In an interview after Ted was arrested, he recalled being shocked on a hike to one of his favorite wild spots. Quote, it's kind of rolling country, not flat. And when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drops. And there's even a waterfall there. It was about a two-days hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. (sighs) You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on, I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. (sighs) Damn, B. I know. I'm just like, okay, Ted, I'm with you. I'm I'm really with you, man. And then you just, you take that step too far. Like, I agree. Wilderness, amazing. We definitely need to stop cutting down trees and all that shit. Like, we need to preserve shit. But arson, blowing stuff up is not He's the like, answer. He's like, this fucking paved road is the last <laughs> motherfucking straw. That's it. Oh, just imagine this now with like smartphones and Instagram and TikTok and how connected everyone is all the time. We're living in his worst fucking nightmare. A hundred percent. Do you think if Ted, obviously if he was not in jail or if he had been born later and he was around now, do you think the whole fact of like 5G would freak him the fuck out? Because there are some people who believe in the 5G conspiracy. Do you think he'd be one of them? Ted Kaczynski is one of the people walking around (laughs) with a key trying to prove they're magnetic after getting the vaccine. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yep. Ted is fully living the QAnon fantasy out in his little cabin in the woods, 10,000%. Oh, God. While living out in Montana, Ted's dad came to visit a few times, and he was actually really impressed with Ted's wilderness skills, because they grew up in a suburb. Yeah. In 1990, Ted's dad is diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Oof. He calls a family meeting, but excludes Ted, and they map out the whole family's future. Wait, is, is there a reason why they would exclude Ted? They just didn't include him. That's like some real fucked up shit there. Like, you go out to visit your kid in the wilderness, and then you exclude In October 1990, Ted's father completed suicide. So I think this was his way to like, let's do some estate planning and just like talk through stuff. Mm -hmm. Even if he didn't tell them, that's what he was planning. Gotcha. Okay. Starting in 1978 and continuing until 1995, Ted Kaczynski began building and mailing or hand delivering bombs. The bombs became more and more sophisticated over time, and ultimately 16 bombs are known to have been Ted's. Oh, jeez. That's a lot. Ted was very careful of forensic evidence and actually went as far as to plant misleading evidence, including planting fingerprints of other people onto some of his bombs. That, okay, that is like so unbelievable that he fought that far ahead to just get other people's fingerprints. Like, how did he get other people's fingerprints? Fucking devious, dude. Many of the bombs contained materials that had been inscribed with the initials FC. Oh my god. Ted says this stood for Freedom Club. Well, because we know back in high school he was into so many clubs. So many clubs. There was Coin Club, German Club, Biology. We might as well have a Freedom Club. Club Kid. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Club kid without the fun outfit or drugs or nightlife or party lifestyle. We, we could have had the briefcases. Just go back to the briefcases, Ted. We don't need we don't need to blow up things. We don't need to blow up things for people. You could have stuck with the briefcase, boys. Yes. 
Ted's first bomb is to Buckley Christ, a professor of materials engineering at Northwestern University. On May 25, 1978, a package with Buckley's return address on it was found in a parking lot on campus at the University of Chicago. Wait, Buckley's return address is on it? He has the bomb. He puts Buckley's return address in the corner and then leaves it in a parking lot. Oh, okay. Gotcha. They see the return address on the label. They bring it to Buckley's office. And he's like, what the fuck is this? I didn't send this. So he calls the campus police. Smart move. Super smart move. Officer Terry Marker opens the package and it explodes. He sustains minor injuries, but survives. Thank goodness for that. But yes, uh, PSA kids, if you get an unknown package, do not open it. Don't. Literally had a case like that two days ago in Fall River, Massachusetts. It was on the news two days ago. This woman, a package was sent to her on her apartment doorstep. Her neighbor's like, hey, you got a really weird, odd package wrapped in tinfoil with your name on it. No, no. Bomb squad comes out. Some ordinance for like the military involved with bombs also comes out. It's an explosive and nobody knows who the fuck sent it. Ted was in Chicago at the time, working with his brother and father at a foam rubber factory. But in August 1978, David fired him. Okay. Ted had been caught writing rude limericks about a female supervisor that he had tried to date. (sighs) The supervisor had rejected him and later said that they were barely acquaintances. Ted, just because you like a woman does not mean that she automatically has to like you back. That is not her role as a woman that she automatically has to like any man. She can and do whatever she wants. And she's a fucking supervisor at your job, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Don't shit where you eat. Exactly. But like. Tale as old as time. 100%. Don't do it. She's your supervisor. Just leave her the fuck alone. What the fuck are you doing? Take it home like a normal weirdo would do. Also, why dirty limericks? Of all things. <laughs> why not math equations? Get yes. to what you know, Ted. Oh my god. He sends her, it's like a riddle in code that he, she's gotta like use her decoder ring to open up. He could get a calculator and type boobs. <laughs> boobies, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Oh god, Ted. About a year after the first bomb, Ted sends another bomb to Northwestern University. This bomb is inside a cigar box. Ted leaves the box on a random table on campus and a grad student, John Harris, opened it. He also sustains minor injuries, but survives. So Ted left a cigar box wrapped up, no name on it, and just left it on a fucking table? Yep. And somebody was like, I'll have a cigar out of this. I'll open this up. In 1979... A bomb is planted in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, which was flying from Chicago to Washington. Okay. Washington, D.C. Gotcha. But I was going to say, now we have taken a step up from little tiny bombs to now let's go to a fucking airport pre-9-11. The timer on this bomb is broken, so it does not ignite and explode, but smoke does start coming out of the box. The pilots do an emergency landing and nobody is injured. Okay. However, this bomb was powerful enough to completely obliviate the Boeing 747. Holy shit. Like, they should have gone to get, like, lottery tickets. Somebody's ancestral spirits or spirit guides were like, not on my watch, bitch. No. We're not, this is not happening today. Oh, my God. God, that is terrifying. And that's so many individual people who lived. That is that is so crazy. And if I was like in a situation like that, you bet I would definitely go out and get a fucking lottery ticket that day. Absolutely. 
1979, the FBI creates a task force, and they start calling the bomber the Unabomb, University and Airline Bomber. The task force includes 125 agents from the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Because the post office is like, (laughs) fuck you for using our services to mail your fucking bobs. Like, how dare you? Someone just comes out the back with like a boombox and they start playing such great heights in the back of the meeting room. Oh my God. <laughs> the task force eventually grows to 150 full-time people, wow. but they aren't able to get much evidence about the bomber. All the bombs were made of scrap materials that literally anyone would have around the house. Ted is so detail-oriented, but with that bomb to take out the plane, it's a broken timer? Yep. Like, What? The other thing that's making this complicated is that the victims have all been chosen randomly. In 1980, John Douglas is a chief agent in the case. John Douglas was a criminal profiler with the FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit. He is the basis for the character Holden Ford from Mindhunter. Oh, that did sound familiar. Good show. It was a little too much for me with the whole animal violence, but I really wanted to get into it. John Douglas is also the basis for the characters Spencer Reed and David Rossi from Criminal Minds. Ooh, okay. Cool, cool. Spencer Reed, my yeah. my husband. Yeah. It's technically Spencer Reed is not my husband. It's Matthew Gray Goobler. I feel the <laughs> need to clarify that quickly. That's fine. I was going to say Matthew's Instagram is amazing. Oh, God. <laughs> His Instagram fits so well with the Bo Burnham white woman Instagram song, too. It's ridiculous. I haven't listened to that yet. <laughs> John Douglas develops and releases this profile of the Unabomber, and they describe him as a man with above-average intelligence with connections to academia. They later update this to include that this man is a Neo-Luddite with a degree in the hard sciences. What's a Neo-Luddite? Neo-Luddism or Luddism is a philosophy opposing many forms of modern technology. The term Luddite is generally used as an insult for people who are technophobic. So maybe people who still use flip phones instead of smartphones, those kinds of things. Gotcha. Okay. So far that profile is four for four. Yep. Ted's next bomb is sent to Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines. Oh, jeez. Ted had developed a fixation on Percy for some reason. Ted had always been really fond of wood, like literal wood. Oh no. He'd already been using wood for his bomb casings. And a lot of people believe that Ted fixated on Percy Wood simply because of his last name. That is so unfortunate for Percy. Like, Percy didn't choose that name, Ted. He's like, bitch, I am not a piece of wood. (laughs) Go away. No. On June 10th, 1980, Percy Wood opens a package left in his mailbox. Inside the package is a copy of the book Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. The book had a bomb inside of it. Oh. Percy suffers burns and cuts over most of his body, but survives. Damn, that's that really sucks. Like I, I've treated a couple patients who like had to get skin grafts for various different things, no. and it's that's my one of my biggest fears. It's so awful, really sad and awful to have to like go through that. I watch a lot of horror movies, and um, there was this TV series called Masters of Horror. I think it was on Showtime or something like that back in the day, but they're like hour long short movies, basically. And there's one of them, I think it's called Right to Life or Right to Live. And one of the characters has been horrifically burned over her entire body and needs basically a full skin transplant. And that haunts me. 
the the images stay with me and will till the day I die. Yeah. Hopefully not in a fire. <laughs> yes, hopefully. You know, anything where you stop breathing is just freaking awful. Just let it be quick. That's what I would hope. In 1981, a package is discovered in a hallway at the University of Utah. The campus police contact a bomb squad, and this bomb is diffused. Oh, thank God. In May 1982, a bomb is sent to Patrick C. Fisher, who is teaching at Vanderbilt University. Patrick is on vacation in Puerto Rico, and his secretary, Janet Smith, is the one who opens the package. No, no, Janet. Janet, don't open it. She is injured on her face and arms, but survives. What was the guy's name who was in Puerto Rico at the time? Patrick Fisher. Patrick Fisher, I really hope you paid for Janet's surgery. Minimally, you better have sent flowers. If a bunch of my fucking body was burned and I was your fucking secretary and I opened up your package while you're in fucking Puerto Rico, just me, I want more than flowers. Generally, I think the universities I've worked for have had good healthcare plans so hopefully this one did too and that wasn't too much of a burden for her all right well then if they did have a good healthcare plan i will then take the flowers ted's next two bombs are both sent to uc berkeley in july 1982 engineering professor diogenes angelicos he is injured on the face and right hand but (sighs) recovers almost completely okay he has surgery and he relearns how to write but he does have permanent gunpowder burns from the bomb oh wow In 1983, the psychological profile of the bomber was scrapped. Oh. The FBI analysts now have a new theory based on the bomb fragments. They believe the suspect is a blue-collar airplane mechanic. Hmm. Okay. The task force sets up a telephone hotline along with a $1 million reward for information leading to the capture of the Unabomber. I mean, I wonder if these are just, like, new profiler guys. Because maybe they just thought that, like, the bomber is just so handsy. Like, he knows how to build these bombs so well. Like, he can't or be an academic. Or he has access to the airports, and that's why he's able to get onto the plane. Yeah. Three years later, Professor Angelikos is among the first people on the scene when another of Kaczynski's bombs explodes. Oh, Jesus. And injured Berkeley graduate student John E. Hauser, a U.S. Air Force captain. Angelikos used his necktie as a tourniquet to stem the bleeding from Hauser's arm. Oh, Jesus. John Hauser lost four fingers and vision in one eye. And this bomb had been made out of wooden parts. I honestly was wondering when we were like going this story, I'm like, when does he come back to UC Berkeley? Because I don't know. It's just like, why are you targeting these other colleges? There was bad blood there. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you're targeting other universities you didn't go to. Why are you not going after UC Berkeley? Why aren't you going after the fucking presidents of the universities or the people who blacktopped your mountain road? Yes. I want to know. What was that construction company that put that fucking road in there? Because also, why are you going after the fucking planes too? What What did the airplanes do to you, man? 14 years later, Angelicos expressed bafflement at the bomber's motives, saying, quote, If someone has a message to give to the world, you can't get it across by killing people. I just don't understand him at all. He must have some mental problems. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, preach. Preach, sir. Very clearly and not cruelly intended, very obviously Ted had mental issues that needed to be addressed. Just because you have mental issues does not give you the right to start murdering people. Absolutely. Yep. Building bombs out of wood, stalking people named wood. It's not, <laughs> yes. that's not it. Just even the fact that you're just like leaving bombs around for anybody to fucking pick up, Ted. Like, what the fuck? 
What the fuck, Ted? Being a faculty on the academic side of things at the university, it's not great. No. Like, you're not making a ton of money. So going after these individual professors does nothing. No. Another bomb is delivered to the Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington, and is defused by a bomb squad. Then, in November 1985, Professor James McConnell and research assistant Nicholas Suino were severely injured by a bomb addressed to McConnell that had come in the mail. Ah, jeez. In late 1985, a nail and splinter loaded bomb was left in the parking lot of a computer store in Sacramento, California. Jesus. The owner, 38-year-old Hugh Scrutton, is killed when he opens it. Another computer store in Salt Lake City, Utah, is bombed on February 20th, 1987. Is it just me or does it also seem like Ted is just like kind of ramping up his explosions too? Absolutely. Because there was like years apart and now we're getting more and now he's adding nails to it. It's like, what? What the fuck is happening, Ted? The bomb in Salt Lake City had been made to look like a piece of lumber what gary wright attempted to move it out of the parking lot and it ignited the explosion severed nerves in gary's left arm and over 200 pieces of shrapnel were embedded in his body oh gary ted had been spotted by an eyewitness when dropping off this bomb and this is where that famous sketch of a man in a hoodie with the mustache and the sunglasses that's when that gets put out in the media okay then There is a six-year stretch of complete silence. No bombs, no type of communication or updates, nothing. That is weird. A lot of the stuff that Ted is doing does not make sense because, once again, he's picking random people. And as uh, that other professor was saying, he's not, like, actually leaving a message. So how is anybody supposed to know that he wants to go back to nature and limit technology and stuff? It it doesn't help if you're just blowing up people. You know why? Because it's not about nature. It's about some other deep-seated shit that he chose not to get help for. Yeah. Who else but an overly confident, mediocre white man would say, in this situation, it's bomb. Yeah. Build some bombs that look like a two-by-four, drop it in a parking lot. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get it. Because instead of building an organization and getting people to, like, spread your message, we're just going to build bombs instead. (laughs) For the 80th time, if you are fucking smart enough to make a bomb look like a piece of wood- (laughs) I promise there is like a save the whales or a green piece or a save the rainforest. There is a place for you and your skills to actually do the work you want to do. And it's not in your fucking cabin putting Jenga pieces together to build a bomb, my dude. That's not it. Like Ted, you could have gone to California, gone to the sequoia trees and just like hug a tree. Just hug a tree or chain yourself to a tree. And there you go. You got media publicity right there. You get your message out. In 1993, Charles Epstein, a geneticist working at UC San Francisco, received a package containing a bomb at his home. Several of his fingers were damaged beyond repair and had to be amputated. Ooh, that sucks. The same weekend, Ted mailed a second bomb to David Glartner, a computer science professor at Yale. David loses sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and most of his right hand. Oh, Jesus. God damn it, Ted. In 1994, a public relations firm executive, Thomas Mosser, is killed after opening a mail bomb that had been sent to his home in New Jersey. (sighs) 
Ted writes a letter to the New York Times stating that he'd sent the bomb to Mosser to retaliate for Mosser's work repairing Exxon's image after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. I, I mean, I just, I have no words, Ted, because I was going to say, why didn't you write that letter to begin with to the Times? But maybe the Times wouldn't have listened to you and you're like, oh, this was my end game all along to do these bombs and now I'm the Unabomber and I can send a letter to the New York Times be like, I'm the Unabomber, save the environment. <laughs> maybe that was the plan. But it's really like, oh, I am petty and I decided to go after this one guy who, in the grand scheme of saving the environment, is not a linchpin. No. He's not the Exxon Valdez executive. He's not one of the Getty family who fucking owns all the oil in the world. Like, I don't, we're not going to understand it. Around this time, Ted's brother David is getting really suspicious that Ted might be the Unabomber. David's wife is pushing him to come forward, but David is still on the fence and he sort of convinces himself he's overreacting. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Like, I'm, I'm an only child, but I can imagine if I had a sibling, I'd be like, okay, they may be a little bit different but like no my my sibling my brother sister whoever would never do that no i'm right this is just all me in my head because you don't want to face the awful truth in 1995 another bomb kills gilbert brent murray who was president of a timber industry logging group this bomb had been addressed to the previous president of the organization who had retired oh jesus philip sharp A geneticist at MIT got another threatening letter from Ted shortly after this. Okay. In total, the various bombs killed three people and injured 23 others. I was going to say, why does the MIT guy just get a threatening letter and not a bomb? There is no logic to this whatsoever. (laughs) I know I should probably stop trying to find logic. In 1995, Ted Kaczynski mailed out a few copies of a letter that he'd written to major media outlets. In this letter, he is demanding that a major newspaper print his 35,000-word essay, Industrial Society and Its Future. He wants it printed verbatim. Wow. Okay, Ted. This becomes known as the Unabomber Manifesto. We gotta get a manifesto, obviously. When you have these thoughts, you need a manifesto. When you have this type of, like, singular white man crime spree, there's a manifesto somewhere. It's like there's a checklist and it's like, okay, go out into the woods, get away from society, build some bombs, manifesto. Center my whiteness, get angry if anyone challenges me, isolate myself. Yeah, all of them. Check all that off, like, manifesto. Check. Yes. Yeah. Also in this letter, Ted says that he will desist from terrorism if his demand is met. Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director at the time, Louis Free, say that it should be published out of concern for public safety, but also someone might be able to identify the author. Okay, those are very valid points. Penthouse offers to publish the manifesto. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. But that's a little bit too trashy for our Ted. I was about to be like, I have a feeling Ted's gonna be like, what? No, no, my work is better than for Penthouse. Excuse me. No, no, that's no. insulting. Ted wants it run in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Because those are legitimate. It's more legitimate than Penthouse. Right. Ted says, quote, to increase our chances of getting our stuff published in some respectable periodical, I will reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our manuscript has been published. The Washington Post ended up publishing the essay on September 19th, 1995. Ted had typed the manuscript out on his typewriter, and he always refers to himself as we or our or FC for Freedom Club. I say us and we 
an hour all the fucking time on this podcast and it is just me it is a one woman show over here I do everything for the podcast but yeah it feels a little bit less desperate when I'm like leave us a review I think I said before once on the podcast that there were some aspects of his thoughts that I found valid specifically around technology and the impact on social interactions okay I have Some quotes and then just some stuff that's right from Wikipedia. Quote, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Technology has had a destabilizing effect on society, has made life unfulfilling, and has caused (laughs) widespread psychological suffering. And again, I say if this man could see the iPhone and the state of the internet. A lot of our stuff now we got from the ideas of the Star Trek creators. The original TV series is operating around the time that Ted was, you know, out in the world, not in prison. And did Ted just be like, you know what? fuck this star trek fuck going into space fuck this like computer screen where you can see people (laughs) i got everything i need up at my plateau let's go check it out ted argues that most people spend their time engaged in useless pursuits because of technological advances he calls these surrogate activities where people strive towards artificial goals including scientific work consumption of entertainment political activism and following sports teams okay you know what ted i am now i am now personally offended by this if i want in my free time to watch the Red Sox on TV, and then during breaks, play Best Fiends on my phone. I am allowed to play Best Fiends and do that like annoying little puzzle game just to work my brain and yell at the Red Sox when they messed up a play. I'm allowed to do that, Ted. Ted also predicted that further technological advances will lead to extensive human genetic engineering and human beings will be adjusted to meet the needs of the social systems rather than vice versa. Yes. Okay. I can definitely see that because I remember seeing articles of like, you can make Make your baby have blonde hair or or green eyes. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You ever seen the movie Gattaca? I don't think so. The premise is that genetic engineering is possible and people who can afford it can pick every single aspect of their child. Any congenital defects are weeded out down to nose shape, eye shape. Literally everything can be plotted from the genome in this movie. And yeah, I mean, I see his concerns. I'm not saying that anything that he's done at any point has been justified, but I do understand where he's coming from. Yes. And once again, 100% agree. And that's the problem. Like with Ted, Ted makes very valid points. Like even before the manifesto, he was making valid points. Ted states in the manifesto that technological progress can be stopped, which challenges the viewpoint of most people who he says understand technology is not good, but passively accept it as inevitable. He wants everyone to return to more primitive lifestyles, like him. Ted argues that the erosion of human freedom is a natural product of an industrial society because, quote, the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function. He also said reform of the system is impossible as drastic changes to it would not be implemented because of this disruption to the system. He also says that the system has not yet fully achieved control over all human behavior and is in the midst of struggling to gain that control. Kaczynski predicts that the system would break down if it cannot achieve significant control, and it is likely this issue will be decided in the next 40 to 100 years. Just a nice wide range there. Well, you know, he's a man of science. He wants to not be an absolute, give himself a wide berth of estimates. No, I get that. I get that. (laughs) 
He states that the task of those who oppose industrial society is to promote stress within and upon the society and to propagate anti-technology ideology, one that offers the counter-ideal, nature. He says that a revolution will only be possible when industrial society is sufficiently unstable. (laughs) A very significant chunk of the document is all about left-wing politics. Ted attributes many of society's issues to leftists. Uh, Okay. He describes leftists as, quote, mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. He's against animal rights activists, but he was against animals being in cages. Yes. Once again, I know logic went out the window a long time ago, but Ted, you're not, none of this is tracking, Ted. None of this is tracking. You're liberal on the environment and conservative on every other thing that exists. How does this work? And I love how, once again, it's definitely always the socialists and feminists that are the problem. I, I, yes, definitely. I'm very glad we brought that back in, Ted. Thank you for bringing those two points <laughs> Ted believes that over-socialization and feelings of inferiority primarily drive leftism, and he mocks it as one of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world. He says that the type of movement he envisions must be anti-leftist and refrain from collaboration with leftists, as in his view, leftism is in the long run inconsistent with wild nature, with human freedom, and with the elimination of modern technology. Yes, The people fighting for gay rights and animal rights and women's rights, those are the ones against human freedom. I was also thinking, like, yes, the people that you want to side with, the the capitalists who are like, yes, let's cut down all the trees, get some more oil drilling out there, melt fucking ice caps in Alaska. Those are the people you want to side with, Ted. (laughs) Right. Ted also criticizes the conservatives. Oh, okay. He calls them fools who whine about the decay of traditional values, yet enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. I mean, I can, I honestly can actually see that. I'd love to know where Ted is actually on a political spectrum. That, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe he's a libertarian. I don't know. Uh, Oh my God. Either that or he's just like, fuck everybody. I'm my own special person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He made his own blend of politics, obviously. You made the birthday party. <laughs> oh I'm my sorry, God. I just couldn't help myself. David reads the manifesto when it's published in the Washington Post. He then starts looking through some old family papers and finds copies of letters that Ted had written to newspapers in the 70s. Oh, okay. Some of the phrases in these letters where Ted is talking about the abuses of technology use the same language as the manifesto shit david already had those suspicions and he was like no i don't want to believe that about my brother and then he's like oh fuck (laughs) yep before the manifesto the fbi held a ton of press conferences asking for help over the years they were convinced that the unabomber was from the chicago area where the bombing started had some connection to Salt Lake City, and was in or associated with the Bay Area of California in the 90s. And these are all the things that David's wife has been bringing up to him. The FBI gets thousands of tips after the manifesto is published, and they have to start looking into everything. At the same time, 
David has hired Susan Swanson, a private investigator based in Chicago, to start looking into Ted as quietly as possible. Later, David hires attorney Tony Bisegli to organize all of the evidence Susan found and get in contact with the FBI. Okay. They have to make sure that this does not get missed in this huge sea of tips that they're dealing with. That was some really smart planning and thinking ahead on David's part. Right. Instead of just going in and saying, I think this is true, like bringing everything. Yeah. Ted's family were terrified that the FBI was going to try to raid Ted's cabin like Ruby Ridge or Waco, which had both happened recently. Yeah, I forgot about that. They were super worried that Ted would respond violently to any attempts that the FBI made to apprehend him. And we already knew, like, since the 70s, he had been setting out booby traps. Yes, he loves a booby trap. Yeah, no, bad bad plan. In early 1996, Bisegli's team is able to get in touch with Clinton Van Zandt, who had worked in the FBI as a hostage negotiator and criminal profiler. They request that Clinton review the manifesto with the type letters that Ted had sent to David, Clinton is able to confirm that there was more than a 60% chance that the same person had written both. Clinton has a second separate team analyze this, and they determine an even higher chance that it was the same writer. Snapping fingers here for peer review. They both recommend David contact the FBI immediately. In February 1996, Bisegli gives a copy of a 1971 essay written by Ted to Molly Flynn at the FBI. She immediately sends it to the task force based out of San Francisco. One of the profilers, James R. Fitzgerald, recognizes that the writings have similarities. He analyzes the writings extensively and determines that the writing matches and more than likely, Ted is the Unabomber. Damn. They start looking into Ted and quickly realize he fits the initial profile. So the FBI applies for a search warrant. David, by going through Bisegli, was trying to keep his identity private. Uh, gonna be easier said than done, David. (laughs) Within just a few days, the FBI are headed to interview David and his wife. They actually meet quite a few times with the FBI, giving letters that Ted had sent them, and this allows the FBI to flesh out their timeline of Ted's past. David becomes close professionally over the next two months with behavior analyst Kathleen Puckett, a special agent of the FBI. This two months of them working together leads up to the FBI serving a federal search warrant on Ted's cabin. David really loved his brother, and in the past, he had followed in Ted's footsteps. He actually also lived as a survivalist for a while oh okay the fbi had promised they were going to keep david anonymous but this didn't happen oh no cbs news gets a leak and their source tells them david's name dan rather an anchor for cbs called lewis free the fbi director lewis asked for 24 hours before they run the story the fbi is frantically trying to get a federal judge in montana to sign a search warrant the fbi does investigate this leak but they never find the source i understand journalism i understand news it's it's really shitty that you're like oh i want to get the first story but don't you maybe want to understand from the fbi's point of like hey we haven't served the warrant yet and if this guy hears that the fbi is questioning his brother about the unabomber don't you think he might either go into hiding or send another bomb like can you maybe think about that once we get him we'll give you an exclusive how's that right on april 3rd 1996 ted is arrested by the fbi at his cabin during the search the fbi finds a ton of bomb components 
40,000 pages of handwritten journals detailing experiments in bomb making, descriptions of the crimes, and they find one bomb that was ready to be mailed out. They also find the original copy of the manifesto. Of course. (laughs) Over $50 million was spent over the course of the investigation leading up to Ted's arrest. $88 million in today's money. Holy shit. That's a lot of money to find him. A very popular theory is that Ted Kaczynski was the Zodiac killer. I mean, does it, it, it's popular and a lot of theories could be popular, but does it like track what the timeline was? Well, the Zodiac killed five people in Northern California from 1968 to 1969. The murders remain unsolved. They were never caught. Ted was living in the area from 67 to 69. Okay. Both Zodiac and Ted, very intelligent, very interested in code, and sent letters to newspapers with threats if their publishing demands weren't met. They were not able to verify Ted's whereabouts for all of the murders. Mm, But because the Zodiac Killer used a gun and knife, the authorities dismissed this as a possibility. Okay. Ted is indicted by a federal grand jury in June 1996. He is charged with 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs. <laughs> I was going to say, that post office man, they were real fucking salty. They were not fucking around. Yeah. They were like, once again, how dare you use our service to mail these fucking bombs? Ted's lawyers try to convince him to use an insanity defense to avoid the death penalty, but Ted says, absolutely not. Shit, dead. On January 8th, he asked the judge to dismiss his lawyers. He has someone new in mind who agreed not to use an insanity defense, but instead would base their defense on Ted's strong anti-technology views. Before you go further, can I make a guess of who it is? Sure. My guess is that it's Ted. Did Ted want to be his own lawyer? I don't know. (laughs) The request is denied. Oh, okay. (laughs) The following day, Ted attempts suicide in jail. Okay, well, obviously not good. Ted is then examined by Sally Johnson, a psychiatrist, and she diagnoses Ted with paranoid schizophrenia. Forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz disagrees with this diagnosis. He feels that Ted wasn't psychotic, but instead diagnosed Ted with either schizotypical personality disorder or schizoid personality disorder. I looked up the differences because I wanted to make sure to be clear, and this is not an area I'm educated in. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, schizoid personality disorder is characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, a tendency towards a solitary or sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. Affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachments to others and simultaneously possess a rich and elaborate but exclusively internal fantasy world. Some other associated features include stilted speech, a lack of deriving enjoyment from most activities, feeling as though one is an observer rather than a participant in life, an inability to tolerate emotional expectations of others, indifference when praised or criticized, and idiosyncratic moral or political beliefs. These symptoms usually start in late childhood or adolescence. 
Okay. Schizotypal personality disorder, STPD, is also known as schizotypal disorder. It's a personality disorder characterized by thought disorder, paranoia, a characteristic form of social anxiety, derealization, transient psychosis, and unconventional beliefs. People with this disorder feel pronounced discomfort when forming and maintaining social connections with other people, primarily due to the belief that other people harbor negative thoughts and views about them. Peculiar speech mannerisms and socially unexpected modes of dress are also characteristic. Schizotypal people may react oddly in conversations, not respond, or talk to themselves. They frequently interpret situations as being strange or having unusual meaning to them. Paranormal and superstitious beliefs are very common. Okay. In 2010, Ted published a book called Technological Slavery, and he says that the two prison psychologists who visited him for four years told him that they saw no signs that he had paranoid schizophrenia and that the diagnosis diagnosis was ridiculous and politically motivated. Okay. <laughs> Once again, do we have only Ted's word? We don't know if those are accurate or not, but I think it's accurate to say that they gave him some diagnosis that he's not acknowledging. Exactly. But I do find it weird that he is also now saying, I had these two separate doctors that said it was political. On January 21st, 1998, Ted is found competent to stand trial by a federal prison psychiatrist, quote, despite the psychiatric diagnoses. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty, but Ted ends up pleading guilty to all the charges on January 22, 1998. He accepts life in prison without the possibility of parole. Later, he tries to withdraw his guilty plea. He says it was involuntary, and he had been coerced by the judge to plead guilty. This request is denied, and it fails its attempt to go to appeal at the U.S. Court of Appeals. The judge, Garland Ellis Burrell Jr., rules that items from Ted's cabin could be sold in an internet auction. Any bomb-making materials were excluded from the auction, thank Christ. Jesus, that is... Once again, I know everybody has their own thing, and as long as you don't harm anyone or yourself, but I don't know, I just always find it cringy when people are like, let me get memorabilia of a serial killer, or... Agree. Like, I remember one time on one of the podcast channels I follow on Facebook, this girl, she got two cute kittens, and she's like, what serial killer should I name them after? No. And I just, I politely commented to her, I was like, hey, I don't really think that's a good idea to do that. Like, if you want spooky names, go with, like, Grim, or I I, I gave other ones like Casper whereas I was the only nice one to this girl like everyone else just like fucking bash her and said like dog piling on them yeah oh yeah which then she got upset and I felt bad about we need to educate this person not scream at her there's still victims out there and family you don't members need of- to glorify killers period like that doesn't need to happen like let's talk about the victims Yes. The proceeds from this auction will go towards a $15 million restitution that was granted to the victims. Okay. Ted's letters and papers were auctioned off as well. The judge does make sure that any references to victims are removed before the papers can be sold. That's at least one small good thing, I guess, then. Ted challenges this in court and says that redacting the letters was a violation of his freedom of speech. Ted, you already violated other freedoms when you murdered and maimed people. You kind of lost it, Ted. If you don't shut the fuck (laughs) up and go back to your cell and sit down... Oh, God damn it, Ted. He loses, and the auction runs for two weeks in 2011. It raises $232,000. Okay. Not close to the 15 mil, but better than nothing. Yeah. Ted Kaczynski is currently serving eight life sentences at ADX Florence, which is a supermax prison out here in Colorado. 
Oh, shit. I know that one because I'm pretty sure the Boston Marathon bombers in that one. I think you're right. In jail, Ted becomes close with Ramsey Yosef, the bomber of the World Trade Center in 1993, oh, and joy. Timothy McVeigh, who was responsible for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Also, double joy. They remain close friends until Timothy McVeigh is executed in 2001. I'm so glad that he made buddies. So, you know, like instead of going to summer camp, you know, let, let's just go to Federal Max Prison and make friends with other fucking bombers. Of course you made friend with another mass bomber, you piece of shit. Ugh. In 2012, Ted responds to the Harvard Alumni Association's directory mailing for the 50th reunion class of 1962. No. He lists his occupation as prisoner and his eight life sentences as awards. What? Ted! 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 <laughs> Ted! What? I just... Sir. <laughs> Sir, you... go back to your seat. Like, I'm. why do you think that's an award, Ted? Why? Why do you think that's an award? What in the fuck? I'm surprised he also didn't list, like, I also made this amount of bombs and I injured this many people and killed this many people. Ted, just like all the members of the Spears family, it's on motherfucking sight. These <laughs> hands are free 99 and I got them for you all day, hot and fresh. <laughs> oh, my oh my god. god. The U.S. government seized Ted's cabin, and they display it at the museum in Washington, D.C. until it was closed at the end of 2019. Yep. The Labadee Collection, part of the University of Michigan's Special Collections Library, houses Ted's correspondence with over 400 people since his arrest, including replies to letters, legal documents, publications, and news clippings. Wow. Ted Kaczynski's writings are among the most popular selections in the University of Michigan's Special Collection. The identity of most correspondents will remain sealed until 2049. Why did they, it was just 2049, just like a random number or? Probably some legal amount of years after would be my guess. Okay. Just a couple things before we like close out and do our thing of the week. Don't glorify serial killers or buy serial killer merch or propaganda. Don't make jokes about serial killers or people being murdered. Don't make jokes at the victim's expense. Think about the families of the killers themselves and that they are also victims of the situation. Yep. I want to be sensitive with the podcast. I want to be victim-centered and not murderer-centered. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear from the way that I talk about people. I have compassion for the mental health factors at play, but that doesn't excuse what you did. No. And it definitely doesn't fucking excuse you listing on your Harvard Alumni Association <laughs> bullshit that your eight life sentences are some big achievements. No. You're fucked in the head if yeah. you got that that little note card that was like, what have you been up to? And that's how you decided to fill that back. That poor kid working at the for <laughs> alumni reations that has to sort through those postcards when they come back in. Yeah. Like, Ted, what about that paper that you did that like only 10 or 12 people in the entire country understood? That's an achievement right there, Ted. Fucking talk you about that. You could have just hung it up there. But no, no. Fuck you, Ted, for trying to be like, hey, look at me. I made this achievement out of murdering all these fucking people. Random people that had nothing to do with your supposed mission or goals. Yeah. Who had nothing to do with the hierarchy or were in power or could actually change the systems you're talking about. He killed a PR guy. Yeah. For what? Ugh. Yeah. 
I remember from the other podcast that when they talked about Ted was they were saying how the cabin that's in the museum now, I guess Ted just did not bathe that frequently. And when he did, he like he would go to a river near his cabin. So basically, I got to a point where he was so dirty and gross. Oh, completely smelly. That his mattress became stained. And to this day, there is a stained shape of the mattress still in that cabin. Ted must have been the most foul bachelor frog of (laughs) all time. Just alone out in the woods with his booby traps and his wood bombs. Yep. Peeing in a coffee can in the corner. Like, who knows? Who knows? No running water. Yeah, exactly. Living in a cabin down by the river. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of a van, it's a cabin. So that is the story of the many victims of Ted Kaczynski. Well, thank you for that story. Thank you so much for coming on. I enjoyed talking about it with you. And I'm glad that we also got to talk a little bit about our philosophies of true crime. I think it's important to note that mine is evolving. As I make the podcast and as I learn and become more educated about the type of content that I want to make and the sensitivity that I want to bring and the focus of why I'm doing this podcast, it's really important to me that I'm clear while there may be things about these people that I can highlight or talk about accomplishments or whatever, they're ultimately people who did horrible things. It's like it's really hard to compare Ted to like other serial killers like the other infamous Ted, Ted Bundy or BTK like they did awful things and it's like when we're talking about Ted's story it's like we can sympathize with Ted to a certain point we can understand some of Ted's thoughts and views to a certain point but it's like once he makes that hard turn of where I'm gonna start harming people I'm gonna start murdering people like I even was not really down with the arsonist shit he was doing because that was not cool right once you start maliciously hurting people burn shit burn your own shit You know what I mean? You don't need to go set random fires. Just burn a controlled fire. Get a fucking fireplace, my dude. Yeah. From someone who loves fire. Yes. Unbelievable amount. I love fire. Yeah. I would live in a fire if I wasn't so afraid (laughs) of being burned and hot. Exactly. If really you want to glorify something and for some reason like you really want to glorify a killer go watch scream glorify ghostface <laughs> like go go find a horror movie that's for you truly yeah and stop listening to this podcast because i don't fucking want you here <laughs> The last thing that I want to say is that I have been doing a lot of reflecting and thinking about the podcast and just what I want this space to be. And it is my intention to not put ads on the podcast. If people want to support by going on Patreon or by doing the Buy Me a Red Bull, that's awesome. And I don't necessarily want to feel like I am profiting off of human tragedy by taking ads. I hope that makes sense to everybody. I'm sure nobody will be upset about not having to listen to ads. I just really feel weird about trying to monetize this space in that way when I created it out of a place of just I want to do something to bring attention to some of these stories. And from my unemployment, I just really, I have a lot of feelings around that. If you have been supporting in any way, whether that's financial or not, I just want you to know I appreciate you so much. I love you beyond belief. And yeah, let's talk about our high points of the week. What do you got? Okay. (laughs) I saw my acupuncturist. I started seeing him about like six months ago when I started getting migraines. And I do take medication for it, but I do feel that that the acupuncturist like just it helps so much and he greatly fixed my back because on Friday I had to stair chair a gentleman who's 115 pounds 
down three flights of stairs. My back, shoulders, and arms were hurting. And after I started dance Saturday, he made everything better. And then, yeah, the other highlight was I got to see a friend that I haven't seen in a while. And then, as always, my my highlight is my dog, Pumpkin, who I love with every fiber of my being. I always do a virtual movie night with um, Ari and a couple of my other friends. So that is just so good. We did one of the Fast and Furious movies last night. So that was fun. My high point, I have so many it feels like this week. And so many have been waiting such a long time for the main one is that I got this job it's really really been rough especially the last two months my mental health has been up and down my suicidality has been up and down and I am always in a safe place but I know that those thoughts will continue to come and go for the rest of my life I've talked about that before on here and I've been getting hit pretty hard a lot of heavy stuff has been coming up that some tightly tightly bound trauma boxes have sort of unfurled and started to spring loose and it's definitely very welcomed that I'll have insurance and financial comfort and be able to go back into therapy and work on my medication protocols and all of those things. I'm really excited about all of that. The other, just this weekend that I had to celebrate, I had a really great time hanging out with my husband, Mike. We had a lot of laughs this weekend. Yesterday, a friend of mine came over. We went out to go get seafood boils. So I ate a pound of king crab and a quarter pound of scallops as well as a bunch of veggies yesterday yesterday drowned in butter and then we went out to Dave and Buster's it was some of the first things that I've done that were pre-pandemic things we actually hadn't been to Dave and Buster's in two years yeah just fun like getting to go out and do arcade games and we have a Dave and Buster's incredibly close to my house so I'm excited to go back (laughs) yeah I'm just happy we recently hit 10,000 streams which was amazing shout out to the folks listening from Ohio you are standing strong strong as the largest listener base. Hello, Ohio. Yeah. Just thanks so much for tuning in, y'all. I am really enjoying making the podcast. It's been really meaningful for me to do so and have a schedule to stick to through all of the ups and downs of pretty much the past year. And I hope to keep making stuff you enjoy. We'll be back soon. I don't know when, but more content will be out. I'll see you soon. friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. Thank you.